0: This
1: is Democracy,
0: a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's
1: most influential
0: democracy. Welcome
2: to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, Today, we have another very special guest. Uh, We have my colleague and friend and distinguished scholar and teacher, uh, Dr. Richard Reddick, with us. He's an award-winning associate professor of education leadership and policy at the University of Texas, uh, where he serves in about 7,000 different roles. I don't think there's a role on campus that uh, Rich has not unpaid. All unpaid. All unpaid, right? Uh, <laughs> he, he works for food. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he serves as coordinator of the program in higher education leadership. He has appointments in the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies and the Warfield Center for African and African American Studies. Uh, he's also the assistant director of our really wonderful Plan 2 Honors Program. That's a setting in which I often work with Rich. Uh, he serves as a fellow at the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis. And uh, he's been very active also in city uh, affairs. Uh, he grew up in Austin, and uh, he served on the steering committee uh, for education working, the education working group uh, of the task force that the mayor created to look at institutional racism and structural inequality uh, in the city of Austin. And that's, of course, an ongoing discussion that Rich is very much uh, a contributor to. Rich, it's great to have you
0: here. It's good to be here, Jeremy and Zachary. Thank you for inviting me. Um, quick addendum: um, so I'm no longer the coordinator of the master's and doctoral program, but I'm now the associate dean for equity, community engagement, and outreach. And I should have mentioned that I'm that's sorry. because I did not update my bio clearly.
2: So. No, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that's on me. <laughs> I, 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 and and once again, you you're getting asked to do more and more,
0: uh, and and we're fortunate that you're doing all. These well, things. I'm I'm fortunate to do it, and I I also am compensated for doing it. So. Um, but it's all good. I mean, this is fun stuff, and you know, I'm trying to keep up with your exploits. That's what well, I'm trying to it's do. Uh, it, it, it's a mutual admiration society, Rich. It definitely is.
2: <laughs> so, before we get into our discussion of uh, these very difficult uh, questions of inequality, institutional racism, and structural uh, challenges uh, in higher education, we have our scene-setting poem from
1: Zachary Suri. Uh, what is your poem about today, Zachary? Uh, well, my poem is entitled "Protagonist's Perspective." Let's hear it. It must be strange for you to walk through the doors that first morning, peeling paint, walking up the stairs. The way are you the way you are constantly walking between low ceiling hallways that resound in Spanish and endless N-words around the endless overwhelming bends of the passageways, and equally frustrating triangle hallways that sound so clearly like English, sound so clearly like the right side of town. Strange and foreign how we all seem to know each other already, the way we can program robots at 15, the way you feel like you are the only one who spends midnights cramming for biology quizzes. And it's weird how you're never the protagonist, the Latina girl with the long bangs floating in silence through classrooms, how you're always the one who got in because of the color of your skin, you're never the hero, the popular kid, the jock, the valedictorian and it feels so strange to you to see it in our eyes, in your white friends from the right side, the way we see someone like you walking through the halls and assume you are not like us, like you could never be the hero, the little snippets you can see left over on our tongues, the bad schools, the good schools, the bad neighborhoods, the good ones. It is as if the bedrock of these floors is somehow beyond your reach, though you walk the same superficial tile each day. And it's strange the way you're never the protagonist, never the hero, never the one who saves the day or admits they know the answer to some trick math question on one of those droning afternoons. Castaway since kindergarten, losing the battle since birth, you must feel in a strange way like you don't have a fighting chance to ever be that hero, ever be the protagonist of your own story, the main plotline you, not the system that surrounds your castaway streets and dark side of the tracks every day. Hmm. That's a particularly deep poem this week, Zachary. What
2: What's your key message here?
1: Well, my poem is really about um, what it must, what I, what I what I imagine it must be like for someone of a minority background to attend a school as as I do, which is a magnet school that is majority white above a neighborhood school that in many ways is majority African American and Hispanic and suffers from major institutional problems. Uh, And it's really trying to imagine how hard it is, even for those who make it to institutions like my school, uh, to, uh, to, to even feel like they can be ambitious and can have a voice.
2: And this is something you witness every day?
1: Yeah, I mean it's something that I don't personally feel this is very much how I imagine it must feel for someone, but I I you can see it simply in the fact that so many of us at my school uh, uh like unintentionally right re- recognize someone who's African American or Hispanic and immediately associate them with the other school because it's it's right beneath us.
2: Right. Right, right. Uh, Rich, why do we find ourselves in, in these circumstances? This seems like a, a, a not a good situation.
0: Wow. Uh, you know, Zachary, props for that, because um, as you were talking, I was kind of reliving my high school experience, mm-hmm. my undergraduate experience, and my graduate school experience, which wow. sort of mirror a lot of what you were talking about. A- and one thing I think about is, um, in my own work, I've theorized on a concept of the proximal experiences of being othered and in my work of mentoring one thing I discovered my advisor Bridget Terry long is an economist and um, I went to her and told her I want to do a study on black faculty mentors of black students and she said it's wonderful what's your comparison group I'm like huh and <laughs> I'm like well I'm a critical race theorist and I'm a phenomenologist I'm gonna stay she's like you need a comparison group so I went out and doubled my sample and found white faculty mentors of black students. And what I discovered is that each of these people, as a phenomenologist, I dig into the lived experience. Like, what shaped your experience? How did you get to this place? And people do the work they do. They don't think about why they do it all the time. They just do it because it's important. They like it. And one thing that comes up with all the white faculty mentors was something in their lives It could be historical, so it's probably not coincidental that several of them were Jewish and said, look, I understand oppression, right? That is something my family knows a lot about. Um, I had a participant whose brother was gay and said, you know, I was the support system when he was in high school. I was the person who looked out for my parents, were not very open. I had a participant who grew up in Scandinavia, sorry, was born in Scandinavia, but grew up in Germany, and that's a difference, and he dealt with sort of being on the periphery as a kid. And so they had a sort of spidey sense about being marginalized. And they would often not just inquire with their students, all their students. They cared about all their students. But they would say, particularly when I look into a classroom of, you know, 25 students and there's one African-American student, one Latinx student, I check in with that student to see how they're doing. And it has to be done multiple times because I don't want to make it sound like I'm expecting them to have problems. But I also know just by the experience of being one of the few, it, you must be carrying a burden. And they, they do this very deftly and very tactfully. And, and so when you were talking, I was like, that's exactly what it's like. It's like having the empathy to understand that that person's lived experience is a little different than the majority of folks. Doesn't mean other folks don't have problems and challenges. And doesn't mean this person's deficient. Right. But it does mean that sometimes you need somebody to say, like, man, this has just been. It's just been hard. Like, I noticed I'm the only person. I'll just give you a quick anecdote from that dissertation study. Um, You know, part of being a phenomenologist or a qualitative researcher is building rapport. So I'm known for talking to people longer than the actual interview is, just getting them to break the ice. And this gentleman I was telling you about who uh, was Scandinavian said, you know, explain to me this thing about fraternities you have here and, you know, the black fraternities and the white. I don't understand it, you know. I happen to belong to a fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And I explained to him, like, historically why they exist. And it's funny because pretty much the the history of fraternities and sororities is about exclusion. A group was not involved. Therefore, the group was founded. So Zeta Beta Tau was founded in 1898 at uh, CCNY because Jewish kids couldn't get into the fraternities that already existed. Alpha Phi Alpha was established in 1906 because the black guys couldn't be part of the white uh, literary societies. So – I explained it to him. He says, well, recently I went to a party in Dorchester. Dorchester, right? Dorchester. Uh, and he said, with a friend of mine he was invited me, and I didn't realize this, but I went to the party. I was the only white person there. I'm like, oh, wow, what was that like? He says, it was fine, but I did notice I was the only white person there. He's like, I, everybody was great. It was friendly. I enjoyed myself, but I did notice. And so, again, you know, even when it's benign, even when it's a welcoming environment, you do notice sort of the hyper-visibility and the invisibility that happens at the same time when you're in that kind of group. So I thought you really captured that really well. And what we have not done well as a society is really figuring out ways to broaden access in a way that doesn't feel um, so specific and hyper-visible because we don't ever say, let's bring in... A critical mass. So my mentor at Harvard, Charles Willie, often talked about in desegregation plans creating a critical mass. Yes. Yes. How do you get to a point where you know that they're not the only ones? And what's interesting about that is when you get to a critical mass, it's often a tipping point and leads to white flight. Just when there's enough people to sort of say, okay, there's several us in the class, then it's like, wait a minute, this is getting a little too an insert your pejorative of choice dangerous, overcrowded, whatever the term is, and then white folks leave. So Nicole Nicole Hannah-Jones has chronicled this so well in her own work about uh, what happens when uh, integrated spaces become truly integrated, and that is you bring in critical numbers of people from different backgrounds, and then often the response from whites is to get the hell out of there. Right, right.
2: Why have we not found better solutions to this. I mean, this is an old problem. This is new research, but in a sense, it's new research explicating something we've known for a long time. So why has it been so hard to deal with this, Rich? I love the fact you just go to the easy
0: questions right away. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think it's, so as a historian, you can appreciate this and um, something that you and and I and Peniel Joseph, our good colleague, have talked about is sort of the Reconstruction and how the Reconstruction was never completed. And that is, when you come to terms and you actually militarily defeat white supremacy, allegedly, um, do you come to terms with the manifestations of that? Uh, The inequities, the lack of resources, uh, the reparations, all, all those sorts of things that need to be dealt with. That was never done in this country. And so we've had this trickling, I think, of some progress and retrenchment. Right. It's always a little progress and a whole lot of ret- retrenchment, right? And um, I think it's because we haven't had honest conversations. And also, and as a story, and you can appreciate this, uh, we have very incomplete data. Right. Uh, generally, we don't know the stories. And I point to myself, you mentioned that I went to, you know, as a military kid, I grew up everywhere, but I did high school here in Austin in Texas. And of course, uh, the historical record that I understood uh, was whitewashed. You know, I grew up, you know, Robert E. Lee, Albert Sidney Johnston, those are great guys. And instead of understanding the complexity of who they were and also the complexity of living in a state that basically uh, sort of subjugated Native and Black people and Latinx people throughout its whole history we don't have we, we don't have the ability to sort of critically say this is what happened and i'll give you a quick sort of example of how it could be different I, i'm not saying that things are perfectly done in the uk they're not clearly what's happening politically there is quite interesting but i did a May uh last year in cambridge and so we visited a sixth form college which is like a prep school for for higher education and the topic we visited the day we were in the uh, lecture was British history from 1066 to 2019. So, a millennia is is a That's chance a long time. to to sort of examine critically what's happened. So, talking about Henry VIII, you talk about Henry VIII in a kind of dispassionate way. Look, these things happened, and it moved British society forward in this way. But these things happened, and they're pretty god awful. Right. Um, I don't know if we are mature as a nation enough to have that conversation about the things that we've experienced because. Um, it's hard to have nuance Mm -hmm. and say, okay, this is a Thomas Jefferson. Here is a, you know, towering figure in American history with a lot of flaws. Can we talk about both of those things at the same time? we must. Versus putting him in the good category or that bad category. And so I I think uh, part of it is this... um, unreconciled reconstructions um, uh, that has not yet happened. And, and I think about, and I have some friends who are from South Africa and talk about truth and reconciliation yes. as a concept, and there's a lot of critique of that. But the fact that you had discourse and you spent time examining, okay, here are the things, here are the the uh, outcomes, here are the things that took place that we need to talk critically about. And I think we have to continue the reconstruction. Um, I'm an REM fan, and the second, <laughs> no, their third album was Fables of the Reconstruction, or Reconstruction of the Fables, however you want to read the uh, album cover. But I think we do have a fabled reconstruction that we have not really critically examined. And the work that you do, and Pinel does, and so many of other our colleagues here at UT do, is really about really having sure. a more accurate understanding of what took place. Because then we have accurate information we can actually start talking about, well, what do we do next? Mm-hmm. So part of it is just um, – I do this in my public scholarship, and you, and you do it as well. And, Zachary, you're just starting on this area of public scholarship. You're doing it too. He's already doing it. Yeah. I mean, I think we're really trying to get people to understand there is a discourse, there is a story here, and you may not have all the information you think you need to have. And, I, you know, when I have somebody walking away from the work saying – I didn't know that. That's the most gratifying thing when people say, hey, I read your op-ed, and you know, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I didn't know this thing took place. Sure, sure. Great. That's right. You've opened up a space, right? Yeah. So, so how do you respond to those
2: uh, who take the other side of this uh, argument? There are some very thoughtful people who do who say, well, we've gone too far in this degree. right? There were many who were critical of the New York Times publishing a whole series of articles saying the United States began in 1619
0: with the first slave ship. Um, What's your response to that? Well, you know, I look at all, you know, as an educational researcher, one of the things in the College of Education we have is a concept called reimagining education. And we have these signature impacts. And one of them is, uh, you know, reconciling inequities in health and education. So let's go look at data, Census Bureau data, you know, workforce data, and I can show you inequities by race. So I, I think the argument would be if, in fact, we have gone too far, you would see parity, right? You would start seeing these these gaps close, but they don't. And when it comes to things, uh, educational attainment, educational progress, uh workforce participation, incarceration, mortality, uh, infant mortality. You might remember, and the data was not exactly, uh, it was somewhat flawed, but these shocking disparities in infant mortality by race in the state of Texas. Uh, And of course, I want to make it clear that we know that there were data issues, but the fact that these are persistent inequities is, is something we should look at. So I always say, bring me the data. The data reports that we've reached parity. Actually, you know, this thing you're complaining about or saying things about, look at our outcomes. The kids are actually doing equally well, regardless of their racial background, their economic background. Then I'll, I I would, I would agree with you, but I'm data driven. And, and the sad reality is, uh, as long as I've been on this earth, we don't have that happening. And I I will make one sort of uh, acknowledgement. So the NAEP, uh, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, um, There is a persistent sort of of top-of-the-pile educational system that always does really well. And that's the Department of Defense Educational Activity, which I'm an alum. I was an Air Force brat, so I spent pretty much all my educational experience into high school in Department of Defense Educational Activity schools. And they have narrow, very narrow gaps uh, racially and socioeconomically. And we're talking about a high-mobility space. Military families move a lot low income military fights, don't make a lot of money um, but I could speak to a number of experiences I had as a young as a young person where um, I really felt that my teachers believed I could do anything they held me to a very high standard and there was an incredible sort of uh ecosystem of support um, and I, that's just not the way that things work in most other school systems and so there's something you said about it being very small that's true but I, I do think that's there are examples that exist out there that we can look at. So uh, for those folks, I always say, look, just show me the data. If the data – and I, I mean all the data, not just right, right. let's cherry-pick one outcome or one finding. Let's look at it holistically. If we see parity, first of all, let's find out what's happening in those spaces to make that happen, right? right? Uh, and then uh, that day comes, I'll – find some other work to do to work on <laughs> <laughs> i think you're, i think you're safe in your work for for I, the near future
1: sadly yes yeah.
2: zachary you had a question
1: yeah um how do we be how and why do we begin to see uh, people who would consider themselves progressive falling into this trap of 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 leaving schools because they become too black or uh or, or wanting to get criminals off the streets sure. and contributing to to these issues oh wow once again, the Surrey family comes with uh, the easy
0: questions. <laughs> um, so, Zachary, I, I think a couple things come to mind. So, the first is uh, the work that uh, Micah Pollock, who's one of my professors in grad school, uh, she wrote a great book called uh, Color Mute. Uh, and, and she talks about how do we talk about race without talking about race? And Americans societally are great at this. We can talk about low income. We can talk about at risk. We can talk about urban. We have all these proxies for race. And um, I'll also mention another book that's really powerful, which is uh, Amanda Lewis and John Diamond's um, Despite the Best Intentions. It's a story. It's really an ethnographic uh, examination of a, a school, presumably in the Midwest somewhere, that is sort of the... Legacy of Brown. It is a school that has got sort of equal representation of black and brown and white kids, and it's kind of got all these things going on. What Diamond finds and Lewis, they find is like, actually, when you go inside the classroom processes, you look at curricula, you look at access to honors and so on and so forth, replicating disparities and privilege and disadvantage continue. So for instance, one thing that you read about is that... um, a lot of the white families have access to social networks. Like, okay, I know people on the school board. I know people who work in administration. And they're able to leverage that to get their kids into, you know, the AP system sections of the classes and so on and so forth. A lot of the black and Latinx families don't have that access. And so they're equally as interested, equally pushing their kids, but not having those networks that sort of can edge things forward. And and once again, I'll mention Nicole hannah Jones's great uh, work she's done. And uh, one thing, and you mentioned her earlier with 1619, she was very involved in that. Uh, one of the most powerful pieces of media I've ever heard is her piece on This American Life, where uh, she goes to what is essentially um, um, the uh, place where Michael Brown was killed. Uh, Ferguson, thank you, uh, in that community, and they're talking about a busing program. And keep in mind, this is a voluntary busing program. So what you're actually getting is what we call creaming. You're getting the absolute most invested parents who are willing to put their kids on a bus for several hours a day. So I could critique that approach as being a creaming approach, right? But nevertheless... But you hear people talk about the, the risk of crime and drugs and all these terrible things that they are proxying having more black and brown kids in the school, meaning, right? So I think it goes back to this innate fear and anti blackness, right? This fear of blackness uh, and expectation that blackness equals all these other things. And it's so embedded in our media, in our education. Beverly Daniel Tatum, you know, the great uh, sociologist, former president of Spellman, my colleague at the Institute of Educational Management at Harvard. Um, Bev talks about racism as smog, right? And we've all inhaled this stuff. And so the discourses, uh, the stereotypes, the mental shortcuts we take, we all take them in, including people of color. So many times those are, I, I, those are ideas that are resonant, like, oh my gosh, yeah, crime is up. And I did notice a couple more black kids walking around. So therefore that is, and of course, uh, you look at any sort of statistical analysis of crime, the crime is pretty much evenly distributed. And in fact, we know, for instance, that white kids are more likely to take drugs than black kids. Right. But we rarely think of that as the group that we should be worried about when it comes to drug use. Right, and black kids are more likely to go to jail for taking drugs, even though they're less likely to use drugs. Absolutely, because it goes back to this issue of bias, both explicit and implicit biases. So I think it's really about examining our prejudices, right? And, and um, I was just talking to some friends about the um, the IAT, which is that test that people have often talked about where you have these images of black people and white people, and you have to at the same time hit buttons on the keyboard to, with positive words and negative words. And um, as somebody who does diversity education, people say, well, Dr. Reddick, clearly you scored off the charts as a person who has absolutely no bias. I said, the first time I took the test, I had a preference for white people. And this is from a guy who is clearly black, <laughs> likes being black, uh, studied African-American studies in college and so forth. But I, the smog is something that I also uh, – and, of course, one of the things we know about implicit bias is that you can't fix it. What you can do is become more aware of it right? right and right. immerse yourself in situations where you're sort of forced to challenge those biases. Uh, so now, I, yeah, I, I tend to have a much less uh, – I tend to score in a way that says either I slightly prefer black people or I'm kind of neutral. But I think it's important people to understand that we've all sort of taken that in. So you hear these anti-black – anti-Latinx discourses from white people and people of color. Um, and I think also me being, um, I, I have an identity where my dad is African-American from the U.S. My mom is from Jamaica, an immigrant. So I also understand how immigrants see sure. the racial dynamics in this country. When you have people who are black immigrants who are saying, yeah, I don't think I'm really part of that group, because they've also understood these stereotypes and these uh, images. So I think anti-blackness that... Resides in in our social, sort of, imagination and realities is what drives that.
1: Yeah, and and for a long time, right, this term busing has, which which is like five percent of actual desegregation efforts, has been like a a code word to to get us to to think like forced desegregation in a way that isn't realistic.
0: Yeah, you know, and that's a great point, Zachary, because I I think that's you know you think about what Brown was intended to do, and you think about Milliken in nineteen seventy four and and so you've had all these in the Charlotte case later on, all these sort of chipping away at the mechanisms we had in place. The funny thing, I was bust. I have to make that point very clear. i, I was I was a graduate seminar at Harvard reading a book about um, Houston's integration efforts, and there was a paragraph that said, you know, well, Houston was having some success, you know, more than Austin, which was not you know, declared unitary until nineteen eighty eight. I was in high school in Austin, 1988. That's when I moved from going to Travis High School to Johnston High School in the east side of the city. And um, I was in the schools at that golden time where we had kids bus from West Austin. So people think about East Side Memorial or Johnston High School as a school that's always been filled with mostly brown and black kids. When I went to school there, uh, yeah, it was predominantly students of color, but we had a lot of white kids. A lot of Asian kids there. And that was their space, too. Like the funny thing is, like, you would think, well, you have a bunch of, you know, black and brown kids, and you have a couple of white kids who are kind of holding the corner. I, I to my, my, my best friends in high school, uh, Ryan. Shout out to Ryan Scarborough. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And Ryan uh, was the only white kid in the basketball team. And so I think about the fact that he had this amazing exposure uh, to this idea of being proximally othered Uh, In a way that you can't replicate it. And, you know, the thing about the great thing about folks your age, Zachary, is that I think you all figure it out. Like, you know, if we put you in spaces together and we tell you you're interested in art, do this. You're interested in band, go do this. You're interested in football, go do this. You come together and you figure it out and once the adults get out of the way oftentimes you start building these connections and these friendships and these allegiances that sort of uh defy these and often when the adults get involved it's like well you shouldn't hang out with that person or you shouldn't date that person right, right. it it goes it goes to you know it goes south
2: so so rich why why hasn't this worked at the university you would think we have At large universities, public and private, you know, we would have an ideal laboratory. We bring these talented kids in. We can kind of, as you put it, we can cream off the most talented kids. And we can put them together in classrooms and in
0: dormitories. Why doesn't that seem to work? Well, I I think there's a number of reasons why. I mean, let's talk about let's let's assume that all the mechanisms all the preparation entry examinations and all those kinds of things that's why so many schools I think are thinking about being test optional right so right. we know the enduring social science statistic is that SAT scores correlate to parental income that's what they predict um, and you know it, it's very difficult to sort of supersede or overcome um, an income gap right and, and that think about how it manifests itself so it means that you can pay for prep courses and so on and so forth. And I'll give a shout out again to Bussing because when I was at Johnston, um, one of my friends said, hey, the PSAT's coming up. I'm like, PSAT? Okay, I know what the SAT is. I'm a first-generation college student. I'm like, is that a practice SAT? What is that? I don't know what it is. And I went to this test. Um, I was in the test, and I was, as a 16 or 17-year-old, quite exuberant. I was cautioned several times, almost thrown out, uh, I finished the test, and I scored well enough to get a uh, national merit recognition or whatever. And, of course, that shifted my college-going sure, trajectory. Sure. I had no idea what the hell that was, right. nor did my parents. So all the ways that uh, income and access to social networks prevent us from having full knowledge, right? So let's let's take that aside. Let's figure out a way that we figured out a way to get an equitable group of kids of color and white kids to come to the institution, right? What is happening here structurally and culturally that makes students feel this is a place they can be a part of? So as a graduate student, I worked on something called the National Campus Diversity Project. And we went to about 30 institutions across the country looking for the place that was getting it done. Of course, there is no place. There are programs, there are things that are happening, but nobody's got it figured out. And I remember being at... um, not close to disclose the school, but a school in the state of Texas, not here, uh, and talking to this, like, idealized group. It was racially diverse, and we had first-gen students there. We had queer students there, uh, Asian, African-American, black, you know, Latino, white. Everybody was there. And um, we were sitting in this um, conference room, and one of the students said, well, you know, look around this room. And on the walls of the room were a bunch of old white guys, right? Institutional founder, big donor here, president here. And they were saying, like, look, even when I'm in the space, it doesn't feel like a space that is meant for me. And that does not mean that you have to have, like, you know, uh, sort of a a color wheel and make sure you have people on the walls all the time. But when you have this explicit expression uh, uh, of whiteness at best and at worst white supremacy – you know, statues don't help, buildings don't help, that are named after people who have actually profited or, or promulgated uh, white supremacy. So I think, you know, how the culture and the space feels is really important. So in, in my classes, I often take my students to visit Houston Tilton University, which is our sister institution across the highway, it's less than two miles from here. And I always remind my students that, you know, HTU and UT are are linked because the integration at UT, Heman Sweat, everybody knows his story, but almost all the students that came after Mr. Sweat were Houston Tillotson alums. They graduated from their undergrad and came to UT to get their... their, So they went uh, to
2: the African American College and then came to UT.
0: Yeah, and so I always talk about the fact that this environment... So my students go there and, you know, they go to a predominantly institution, a PWI like UT, and they're like oh my God, this place is so small. And we walk around for a while and the students are like, oh my God, they all know each other. And the faculty know the students and they speak to them and they're like, I want to go to HTU, you know? And it's amazing. So I'll have students who thought black colleges were deficient or not as good. And they're like, how do I get that experience? And every so often, we'll have a student on the panel who is white or Latino. And they're like, wait, they have students who aren't black here? And I was like, you know, there's HBCUs that are actually predominantly white. Do you know that? And they're like, yeah, I didn't know that. But all that's to say is that they immediately see a difference in the culture. And we're working really hard at UT, I think, in pockets to create cultures that are supportive. But unless we critically examine and really point the finger inward and sort of say, how are we representing the identities that we have present? And how are we sometimes uh, passively replicating and reinforcing and reifying white supremacy or, or, or white whiteness generally is a problem. And it doesn't mean you erase white people. It means you make space for people of color who have been equally invested. So one of the wonderful things during our time at the university is um, the film When I Rise, which was the uh, documentary about Barbara Smith Conrad, who was one of the first – she was in the class of the first African-American undergraduates, in 1956. Uh, when she came to UT, the very first semester she was here, she was elected to be a member of the annual opera. When they found the legislature, they had her removed because she was appearing opposite a white man. And, you know, basically the, the story of how she dealt with that at the age of 18 and had an amazing career yep. and then... Over time, 1980, she comes back to UT as an distinguished Alum to the point she comes back as teaching here. Right. It's an incredible story about how—a reconciliation story between one person and institution. And it was revelatory for our students to see that because they sure. can't imagine a time when that was the case. I'm like, there are people alive who wrote the letters who said, this Negro girl should not be in this, as well as people who said— you people in Texas are crazy. She absolutely deserves deserves, deserves that. It's always been a complicated uh, story, but it's such a powerful thing to see that happen at your institution, right?
2: And, and you've given us so much here, Rich, to, to 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 chew on and think about. Before we turn, as we always do, to. What we can do about this? I do want to ask one other question because it yeah. comes up uh, for me all the time. In fact, it came up at a talk I gave the other day uh, in another. Uh, part so, of we do your work for you? <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Tell me what to say. Um, and the question is often asked this way: um, So, what's wrong with universities today? You you don't have fair, open discussions of these issues, right? You don't allow people to come who have a different point of view. Why don't you let people come and make offensive white supremacist arguments and defend that? Uh what what's your what's your response to that?
0: Yeah, so it reminds me of the time I went to a meeting and uh one of the sponsors was uh was Coke, and I thought it was Coca-Cola, it is actually the Coke, the Coke Brothers Industries. Yeah. And so they're very interested in talking about issues of free speech. And what I've often had to sort of support or augment is like let's think about this in a way that supports students' well-being. And I've always said to my students, look, I encourage discourse. I want to have you all talk about things. But first of all, we have to build a sense of trust and community. That's the first thing we have to do. The second thing is anything that denigrates somebody's worth or well-being or or sense of belonging is problematic to me. So, and I was a student here in the 1990s. And when I told them I was a plan two major, immediately, what was your SAT score? And when I told them, they're like, oh, well, you're an outlier, but, you know, but, I know that people have lower scores, you know, and they got into the Plan 2 program, and there's always, like, this asterisk. Sure. You you lit it in your your poem, Zachary, by saying this idea that test scores somehow equate intelligence. Again, I'm the kind of person who actually scores well on tests, so guess what? You're wrong. But nevertheless, I also realize that's not enough to simply say, well, I got mine, you know, deal with it. I, I really think that one thing we have to really think about is when people say, you, your identity doesn't matter, you know? You're a transgender person, therefore, you shouldn't count as much as a person who identifies as male or female. That's hugely problematic, right? And um, I know all the case law and how we talk about free speech, and there is no protections about people's humanity, right? There are some prohibitions on free speech, like you can't say fire in a crowded place. You can't provoke violence. Right, Uh, fighting words, all that good stuff. But I do think that there is this um, huge, lack of empathy for what it like it's like to be denigrated and i think i lived that experience and i remember going to spaces and when i was 18 19 20 years old and i'm 47 now so obviously i feel differently about it yeah i can we're still young, Rich. We're the same yeah, age. Yeah, we're still we're young. still young. But I can walk past the affirmative action bake sale and say, that's stupid and it doesn't make any sense. But <laughs> I know it provokes students. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> right, right. I need to make that point. And I actually had this thing where I would tell students, don't get excited about that. But I said, you know, I've had life experiences and I have a reservoir of things I can lean on. But when you're 18, that's actually challenging your right. worth. Right, right. And there's ways to have discourse that are respectful. So The intergroup dialogues, which started at Michigan, there's a whole body of research that supports, like, that's how you have engaged discussions. You set up situations where students have a chance to get to know each other, and you do it over time. So if I, if, you know, Rich and Zach and and Jeremy are sitting together, and we've known each other for a while, we can go a little deeper. Right. And also, I don't think we've done a good job of modeling that sort of discourse. I agree with you. Um, I think there are very few places, I look at the Intelligence Squared, uh, shows on PBS, which I love because the whole point of that is that you're supposed to make an argument and convince people to change their minds. Not to have more people in the crowd who like what you're saying, but how do you change minds? And it's done in a sort of debate type format with times and so on and so forth. But I just think that we, you know, we've, we failed as a generation to really model what it means to engage in discourse in a way that can challenge assumptions, but also empathize, right? So, let's suppose you don't agree with a policy position. You can make that argument in a way that does not dismiss the humanity and the value of people who may have benefited from that policy decision. I agree, I agree. Rather than shouting at someone. Yeah, not only that. I mean, let's also be honest about the fact that we often talk about say, something like affirmative action. And we'll talk about the race-based affirmative action, which we would prefer to call holistic admissions processes, because affirmative action hasn't existed since 1976. I mean, the Bakke case kind of outlawed any kind of quota system. So we always know that race is a plus factor, right? But we know from the Harvard cases that just, just was adjudicated that there are a lot of white kids walking around who are legacies, sure who have um, athlete athletic uh, affirmative action in, in place, but we never talk about that as well, right, right so if we want to talk about, hey, there should be a standard for admissions that doesn't include anything extraneous to your academic work and how you perform if that's what's going to be. Let's be consistent about that. Right. And I've always said to people, I support holistic admissions. I support legacies. I think, it's, I think it's important to have some people on the campus who have connections to the institution. As a first-gen student, that was important to me to have friends who were at UT, whose parents went to UT and knew all the traditions. I didn't right. know that stuff. Right. Right. So I just want us to be consistent in that thing. And of course, you know, the Varsity Blues scandal kind of blew that whole thing open because you realize there's a whole culture of advantage that's being employed that people don't have a major problem with until it's egregious. Because as bad as Varsity Blues was, there are smaller less egregious versions of that happening every Every single day. day. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we we always close, Rich, with
2: um, using this uh, rich historical knowledge, using the the range of perspectives that you've offered us so brilliantly here, uh, with trying to think about how we move forward, especially Mm -hmm. for our young listeners. What can we do? If we're now better informed, and we certainly are listening to you, uh, what do we do now? How can we, how can, especially those who care and are Mm -hmm. part of institutions of higher education, or sending their kids there but aren't in the position to
0: actually be running these institutions, yeah. how do we make a difference? Well, that's... that's Whoa. Once again, the easy question comes. Um, it's funny because academics were really good at identifying problems. Right. Yes. <laughs> so often it's like, how do you solve this? Yes. Like, oh, wait, you didn't ask me about that. So I have a number of thoughts about that. I, I think... Uh, one thing I've just recently written about, and you know about this, but uh, you know, what's our public investment in higher education? Yes. Yes. Um, and I talked about it from a perspective of how do we support it financially in our sort of policy decisions, but also how we invested in higher education as a society. And I, I think asking, and some of my colleagues that here at UT, uh, Keflin and Anthony Brown, I think about who've been doing this great work on um, teaching slavery. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dana Berry, our colleague, who Mm -hmm. does incredible work. There's such a reservoir of information that's available here, and people are actively doing the scholarship. Uh, our good colleague Kevin Coakley and in IUPRA, his Institute for Urban uh, Policy Research and Analysis, has been working so adeptly and putting out policy briefs accessible to the public. Yes, this is the real story. In fact, uh, one of the most powerful things that I think IUPRA did was uh, the work that Eric Tang and some of our colleagues worked on about Austin's history yes. of sort of racial um, racism from the 1929 plan. To uh, the whole situation with um, the um, I'm forgetting the term now. Um, uh, restricted covenants, right. all the things that were done to sort of reify redlining and legislate it, you know, to prevent quickly. people from buying homes in particular neighborhoods. Right, and so all of those things are parts. Of, so I teach a class on the history history of higher education, but also a class on social, cultural context of education. And Jennifer Holm, my colleague in the College of Ed, and I taught that class together. And I find it's amazing that when we read Myron Alford's work, people talk deeply about these issues and about redlining, you know. um, um, I can't remember the name of the uh, the author now. It's going to come to me. Uh, But anyway, the the great book on redlining just came out a little while ago. Um, You know, my students often don't know that history. And we assume that we'll... You know, Levittown and, you know, the suburbs in Tarrytown just looked that way because they looked that way and because people didn't want to live there. Like, they couldn't live there. Right, and there were actual right. efforts to make—and the things that were done, like having hiring black people to walk on the streets to dissuade white people from moving to those neighborhoods, you know, right? that was something that was done. Um, and we really didn't have legislation to sort of prohibit that kind of thing until the late 60s. So really understanding the complexity of our racial— um, mess in the United States. Not sugarcoating it, but just saying directly, this is what happened. But also not acting as if because it happened in insert year here, the effects are not present today. I have found talking to folks who often don't agree with me politically, we, have, we actually have a lot of agreement about past historical right, right. events. Yeah, right. But then there's this sort of, well, that was then and this is now. We had a couple of things coming up. We have laws now solved. And things like interger- intergenerational, intergenerational transfer of wealth, things, you know, how education, for instance, uh, is sort of transmitted in the regard that if this is what's so important about being uh, a first-generation college student, if you go to college, the propensity for your kids to go to college is exponentially higher. Of course. Yeah, of course. And you are transforming your family's trajectory economically, socially, network-wise. So if we can get to a point of understanding the historical record is what it is, but history is not a book close kind of thing. There are events that continue today. There are processes. I was talking to a middle school recently and a young man asked a great question. He's like, Dr. Reddick, you're telling me these stories about these slave owners and it's awful. I think it's horrible. But that was in 1860-whatever. Why is it still happening? It's a great question. I said, "Well, let's talk about what it means to have not had the transfer of wealth and and property over generations, and how even after slavery, those things were prohibited, right. and so all those things equal to us having a a, a, a landscape that's very uneven. Yeah. And you can find outliers. Yes, you can find somebody who 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 is phenotypically white whose parents." grew up in Eastern Europe. I actually know somebody like this and came up with nothing and now are present in the space doing great. But they're not considering the fact that whiteness affords you advantages and at least eliminates barriers in some regards, right? We can play either way from advantage or just eliminating disparities and barriers that exist. People of color still confront those. And of course, people of color fight through them. They overcome. But my God, wouldn't it be great if people could simply... uh, This is what... And, I, you know, back to this whole issue about how we sort of see ourselves in the space. I grew up thinking that, yes, you know, hard work gets you where you're going. I, Horatio Alger's story, that was – I kind of bought – I grew up overseas, you know. Right, of course. So I was like, well, this is what how it works. You were promoting that to the rest of the world, actually. Right, exactly. You know, imperialism is what we do. And when I, when I got here and I started being in spaces like University of Texas or Emory University, Harvard University, I realized the normal distribution – of intelligence, effort, attitude. I knew people in all those spaces who were brilliant, people who were slackers in all those spaces. And I was just like, wait, it's there's nothing special about the people in this. I mean, they're special, but they're not um, extraordinarily special in the regard that they're better. And that was revelatory to me. Because I thought, well, if you're at an elite institution of education, you must be a better person in some way. But there are slackers here. <laughs> there are yeah, slackers yeah, yeah, here. Sure, sure. uh, and, and once you understand that, you start understanding how advantage works, right? And how privilege works, and how if you come from a certain socioeconomic background, racial background, you name the networks you have, being mediocre—and I don't mean this—I mean this in a very sort of broad, terrible sense. I apologize for using that word. But being average can get you into an elite institution of higher education. Whereas being average in the community I grew up in, I don't know what gets you. It doesn't get you necessarily in higher education. It might get you into the criminal justice system. So really understanding how that process works is important. And I really think spending more time in each other's experiences matter. Um, I saw a great documentary a few days ago on PBS about incarcerated uh, people who were getting degrees at Bard. And Bard College. Bard College, yeah. And it it walks through their experiences. So, you know, these kids who, when they were kids, made terrible decisions, did terrible things, and they're now spending 20 years compensating. And you're like, wow, if this young man at the age of 15, 16 had access to this intriguing curriculum, these exciting things, then who knows where they would have ended up. And of course, this goes back to the issue of culturally relevant pedagogy and and curriculum. If you tell people constantly, we're going to learn about history, we're going to learn about social science, we're going to learn about, you know, you name the topic, but you're not a part of this conversation. It's not people like you, nobody like you is involved in this, versus, you know what? We're going to learn about the history of Mexican-Americans in the state. And you're going to learn about the people in your community who did amazing things. And I always tell people... I had ethnic studies in my school before it actually was a thing because in, in East Austin and Johnston High School, Tony Castillo would tell you about the activists in the community who went to school here. My school has a very strong tradition of the people who... Um, led the city, who were involved with city council or whatever, who went to our school and our community. And so Angela Venezuela, my colleague in the College of Education, has done this great work on ethnic studies. And we know when you tell Latinx kids and you teach them about the history and the indigenous contributions, they are eager to learn more. So when we have subtractive, and to use our words, subtractive educational experiences where they're constantly being canceled out versus like, you're a central part of this. Right. Your grandparents, right. what they did. Your parents, what they did. This is critical. That's how you get people excited about right. things. Right, right.
2: So, so, Zachary, does this resonate with you? What, what Rich has laid out for us, I think, is actually a very powerful and optimistic view, which is to say that by understanding our history warts and all, We can actually empower more people and we can all feel part of a larger community, not because we all share the same heroic narrative, but because we all share the same narrative, a narrative of different kinds of experiences. And by talking about that, we actually have something in common. What
1: do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that the the struggle with uh, getting young people to care about these issues is not do they care about equality? Do they care about integration? I think it's I think all almost all young people I know today care about those issues, even those who would be on completely opposite sides of the political spectrum. I think the issue is educating people about this. So many of my friends think think segregation and inequality ended in 1964. And I think talking about the lasting inequalities in the criminal justice system and in education is what we need to do, conversations like this, in order to get young people involved in these issues. I mean, it's 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 crazy to me. I Before I started a research project for school, I had no idea that Austin only became integrated in 1986, and from there, pretty much resegregated. Yeah.
2: Right. Well, I think, uh, Zachary and Rich, you, you've given us uh, actually a very optimistic path forward, a path forward where informing ourselves allows us to address these issues and really get, get beyond the name-calling to, to see that, that we're all part of a, a story, mm-hmm. a story where we all, have, we all inherit certain roles, yeah. and understanding those roles gives us something to talk about, something we can, we can work toward.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, Zachary, you nailed it. And I think this issue of empathy and really understanding lived experiences. So when you tell somebody what it was like to, so um, when I was in graduate school, obviously in Boston, METCO, that's a big story about integration. Here are the narratives of kids who went through the METCO program, who got up at five in the morning, who were socially isolated from friends like theirs. Um, One of my former students, Dorado Kinney, who's now a, a dean at the Austin Community College, was a kid who went to school in Cleveland and inner city, got to go to a, you know, prep school Ended up at Columbia. And he did a great dissertation talking about what is it like to be that person 40 years on, you know, when you are an adult, my age. And, you know, most of those participants said, you know what, I had a great educational experience. I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I have these great attributes, but the social cost for me was profound, you know? And I, I think people really sort of gravitate towards hearing stories so even understanding that the the process of integration the process of busing you had these incredible upsides but also had these negative aspects to it too and i think the more we understand that the more we actually talk to each other uh the better we are and we've gotten to a point like you said where we're just very surface uh we want to and you know let's end with this quick anecdote i was watching rick steves who has this <laughs> you, know, you know travel guy yeah but you know He's woke because he did this uh, sort of travel guide on fascism. And so he's going to Germany. He's going to visit Berlin. He's going to Auschwitz in Poland. He's he's, he's going these things, and he's not making these points. But he makes the point subtly that you don't have these things happening one day. It's a small trickling, well, these people are a problem. They are causing this You know what? Let's actually create laws. And it goes and goes and goes and goes. And I, I think... When I look at this country right now and I see rallies conducted by a certain political figure where you can mention somebody's names and the booing happens and the screaming happenings, it reminds me of the pictures you see during integration where you see the little nine walking down the street and there are these contorted faces of 16-year-olds screaming at these people. Yes, And I always wonder, what does that person feel like now? Maybe they feel the same way. But they also were probably, you know, brought up in a sort of social milieu where, you know, these people are subhuman. They're not like right, us. Right. They're not worth blah, blah, blah. But I think some of those people probably have had a change of heart. Right. And I really want us to think about – that's why history is such a great guide because we can look back and see these things, right? Uh, I use that picture a lot to show to my students. As, look, what do you think's going on through the eyes of, you know, the Ruby Bridges, the Little Rock Nine, the students yep. who are just oh, walking – Looking straight ahead, you know, with military uh, discipline almost. to not... military
2: escort. Yeah. They had to, I
0: mean, the 101st right. Airborne had to escort them to school. Yeah, the Norman Rockwell uh, painting we all know. Uh, and, and, and so seeing that and, and feeling empathy, but also looking to people, what's going through their minds? Right, right. You know, and one of the sad things, I think, Zach, you're making this point. When you don't know history, I hate to be the cliche, you're... Doomed to repeat it. Yeah. You do the same things, you know. And and
2: uh, I think your central point that you made so well, Rich, and you make this so well in your in your scholarship and in, in so many of the things you cited as well, is it's very easy when you detach these issues from a historical framework to dehumanize certain actors. It's us versus them. It's good versus evil. And that can happen on both sides of the issue. And what a a larger narrative, knowledge of these issues, as you've said, awareness does is it allows us to see, even if we're in different positions in that narrative, it allows us to see ourselves as part of a common narrative and to talk about how we can all find a place in it. And I think that's what Zachary's poem was doing. That's what you're struggling to figure out in school. And that is the work of democracy. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy.
1: This
0: podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the
1: University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.